And if you have your copy of the Word of God, I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Book of Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 22 in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Hebrews chapter 9. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This message is simply no shedding of blood, no forgiveness. Have you ever bothered to stop and think that the Bible is a bloody book? The word blood is mentioned over 250 times in the Bible and 23 times in the book of Hebrews alone. In fact, we have songs that deal with the blood of Jesus because the Bible mentions blood so often. Here's the lyrics to one of them. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Sounds pretty bloody. A fountain filled with blood, and sinners plunged beneath that flood of blood, During the thousand plus years under the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices of each bull sacrifice, or if each bull sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood in a a quart, then the Old Covenant was indeed filled with blood. Indeed, it was a flood of blood. Just take the Passover as an example. They would construct a trough that flowed from the temple to the Kidron Valley to dispose of all of the blood. Imagine what it would have looked like if PETA were active during the Old Covenant. Ever since the time of Christ, people have struggled over the doctrine of the shed blood of Christ in order to atone for our sins. 
Even when Jesus told his, his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, Peter stood and rebuked him. Paul, when he was writing to the church at Corinth, said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He didn't stop there because he went on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is why Christianity gets named a slaughterhouse religion. How or why would a God be so petty as to have His wrath appeased by the blood of someone innocent? What kind of God would demand a blood sacrifice in the Old Testament and then the blood sacrifice of His only innocent Son in the New Testament? Maybe you've asked those questions. Or maybe you've had someone ask you those questions. Yet God has made it very clear. The forgiveness of sin is only possible if an acceptable substitute's blood is shed. When Adam and Eve committed the first sin, they realized that they were naked and they tried to cover themselves with, with fig leaves to hide their guilt and their shame. However, that wasn't acceptable to God. Instead, He clothed them. And what did He use to clothe them? The skin of a slaughtered animal. You see, from the very beginning, God made it clear that the horrific penalty for sin is the shed blood. But He also made it clear that He was merciful. He was a merciful God by providing a substitute. Fast forward to the sacrifice of the children of, of Adam and Eve, when they brought their sacrifice forward, Abel obeyed God by bringing a sacrifice from his flock. But Cain brought an offering from the ground. God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. So what happens? Cain murders Abel. Why all the blood? Why do we have the blood in the Old Testament? Why the blood of Christ in the New Testament? For one main reason that is answered in this text this morning. Because sin demands the shedding of blood. This does not mean that the blood atones for sins, but it does demonstrate that sin brings and demands death. The cry throughout the Old Testament is sin brings death. Sin brings death. And so the worshiper under the Old Covenant would have known first that sin requires death, but they also would have known that to offer such a sacrifice required a spirit of repentance and that they were pleading for God to show them mercy. And for some of them, they knew that the sacrifice was pointing ahead to the one who would bear their sin permanently. However, as we have seen, the old covenant was flawed. It couldn't clear your conscience, but Jesus came and he brought the new covenant. He came as the all-sufficient sacrifice. And for anyone to go back to that old covenant system of sacrificing animals meant they wanted to return to a system that never offered a clear con conscience and abandoned the redemption that God had provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. The point of the text being driven, driven home today is no shed blood, no forgiveness of sin. The solution for the problem is not that we try harder. 
But the solution is God incarnate, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ in His shed blood. The old sacrificial system and the old priesthood are a foreshadowing of this. Furthermore, we have mentioned in verses 16 and 17, we have this mention of a will and how it is the only, or how it's only in effect after the death of the one who made the will. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant by his death and the shedding of his blood. Our salvation, which is our inheritance, rests on the new covenant in Christ's blood, which is superior to the blood of animals. So, I want to draw your attention this morning to three specific facts from this passage of Scripture that we can walk away with. Three specifics. First, Christ's effective atoning death makes Him mediator. Christ's effective atoning death makes Him mediator. What is the job of a mediator? Well, the mediator arbitrates to bring two parties together. So why do we need a mediator? Well, we need a mediator because God is holy and we have violated God's standards and therefore you and I stand guilty before God. So our main issue is not that we just feel guilty, but our main issue is that we are guilty. And if we are guilty, then we are condemned on the day of judgment. And, and if we're condemned on the day of judgment in our guilt then that guilt is eternal. The penalty for a violation of the law of God is to be cast into the lake of fire, also called the second death. Now, we try all kinds of things to deal with guilt. As we've already looked at, one way we, we try to deal with guilt is through uh, uh, our own works and, and doing good things. And all that does is diminish the holiness of God and make a mockery of His forgiveness. And this is how that goes. People think, well, God is love. Surely He's not going to send me to hell. After all, I'm not that bad of a person compared to someone else. I'm actually a pretty good person. However, the Bible's clear. That God is holy. And He is just. And He will punish all sin. And our comparison is not to someone else, but to a holy God. You see, we can't emphasize one attribute of God at the expense of others. We can say that God is love and mean it. And we can't say that God is love and mean at the same time that, that uh, His justice is no longer a part of Him. Or, we, or He's holy and He has an absence of justice. Not only that, but we are far more sinful than we think. In fact, when people are confronted with their sin, rarely do they realize how evil sin is. The Bible is clear that every single person is born with the guilt of Adam imputed on them. And what this means is that when we are born, you are born guilty. And it is not uh, long before we add our own sinful actions into that. So you're born guilty, but before too long, you... Begin to add your own sin onto that. We need a mediator because we are guilty. Each and every one of us. We are completely alienated from God. We are separated from Him. And if the role of mediator is to bring two parties together, this is the role of Christ Jesus. Because He is our mediator. And He is our only mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one mediator between God and man. 
the man Christ Jesus. So God is absolutely holy. Man is terribly sinful. And so Christ takes on human flesh, lived in complete perfection, and met all of God's holy standards, and then offered Himself as the payment for our redemption that God's justice demands. And He brought both sides together. God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and He brings them together as the mediator. Now, here's the thing. His blood is both retroactive and proactive. Some people like to think that the people in the Old Testament were saved differently than we are saved today. But that's not the case. They were saved the same way, through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at the last part of verse 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, which was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, was retroactive and it atoned for the sins of the Old Testament saints. And so by their sacrifice, it was a postponement of the penalty for sins until Christ paid for them on the cross. One way to look at it is like this. Salvation of the saints before Christ was on credit until Christ paid the bill. Paul makes it clear that believers were saved under the Old Covenant through their obedient faith in God, which was demonstrated by their sacrifice as they humbly acknowledged that sin required death and they desperately needed the mercy of God. Listen to what he writes. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The fact that everyone is a sinner and in desperate need of God's forgiveness points to our need for mediator. Christ is our mediator. But not only that, it means that we can offer the gospel to everyone and trust in the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. What it means is that we are off the hook. And that's what this is what I mean by that. You say, what do you mean that we're off the hook? This is what I mean by that. Because far too often... Christians put themselves on the hook, and this is what that looks like. We run around thinking that someone's salvation depends on us. But it doesn't. So we think, well, well, that person's salvation depends on me. And so sometimes well-meaning pastors try to guilt trip Christians into sharing their faith. You shouldn't be sharing your faith because you feel guilty for not sharing your faith. You should be sharing your faith because you love God so much and you love people so much that you want to see them come to know Christ as their Savior. That's why we share our faith. We don't share our faith out of guilt as if their salvation depended on me. Often we're intimidated when it comes to sharing the gospel because we're afraid that we're not smart enough or that we're not going to know enough or or what if I say the wrong thing or what if I 
mess it up? Or what if we talk to someone that's super, super intelligent and they try to prove that there is no God and I don't have the answers and we psych ourselves out from ever sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because we think for some reason that it is all dependent on us. Listen to me. This is what we must keep in mind and keep before us at all times. People are sinners who will one day die and they will appear before a holy God and they desperately are in need of a mediator to reconcile them before God on that day. Jesus Christ is the only mediator capable of doing that. And His effective atoning death through His shed blood on the cross was a price of redemption for any sinner who will trust in Him. That's it. We share the Gospel because we love the Lord, not because someone's salvation depends on me. Because it doesn't depend on me. Because Jesus is the only mediator. It doesn't say Josh Mond is the mediator. It doesn't say you're the mediator. It says that Jesus Christ is the mediator. And I share the gospel trusting that He will do what it says He does. He will mediate. And it's all dependent on Him. Not on me. Secondly, not only do we see that Christ's effective atoning death makes Him the mediator, but we see that without bloodshed, there is no forgiveness. Without bloodshed, there is no forgiveness. We already looked way back to Genesis chapter 1, where we saw the sin of Adam and Eve and how God shed the blood of an animal. Something had to die and blood had to be shed for forgiveness to take place. Now the author speaks about a will for the people to understand the death of the Messiah and why it was necessary. The point, the will does not go into effect until after the person who made the will dies. Death is a prerequisite for the execution of the will. God has made it clear that the payment for sin is death. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Back in the book of Leviticus, when instructions are given for the sacrificial system, God gave explanation as to why blood had to be shed. This is what he said. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement, For your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. If blood is not shed, there is no atonement, meaning there is no forgiveness. God is a just God. And His justice demands that there has to be a payment for the penalty. And the payment is death. However, as an act of mercy, God will accept the death of a substitute in place of the sinner. However, that substitute must be acceptable. So under the Old Covenant, they brought an animal without spot or blemish that was pure. And it pointed ahead to Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What is the point of all this bloodshed? Why did there have to be bloodshed? I submit to you three reasons. First of all, sin brings death. Sin brings death. The fact of Scripture is that sin brings death. God told Adam and Eve, the day that they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what? You will surely die. Did they eat of the tree? Yeah, they ate of the tree. Did they die right then and there? 
Not physically. They didn't physically drop dead. You know why? Because they spiritually dropped dead. Before this, they had intimate fellowship with God. There were no barriers between God and man. But when they ate of the fruit, there was instantly, they are instantly alienated from God. And what did they do to prove that they were alienated from God? They noticed that they were naked. And they tried to hide from His presence. And so they did not die on that day physically, but they did die spiritually. And sin brings spiritual death. But even though they did not die physically on that day, they did usher in the process of physical death on that day. Everyone from that day forward would all die a physical death, except for Enoch and Elijah. Even though some people would live to be hundreds of years old, their body would still deteriorate and they would eventually succumb to death. Sin results in death. Everything in this world that is terrible is a result of sin. Murder, war, crimes, disease, atrocities, terrorism, even environmental devastation. It's all a result of sin entering into our world. It brings death and destruction to everything it touches. Listen, the entire history of our world is the history of sin reigning in the hearts of mankind. The wars that have been fought in order to gain territory and resources from other violent dictators that have risen to power only to be overthrown by a more violent dictator is a never-ending cycle. Sin is the root of every physical and spiritual death in this world. Everyone that does not know Christ is spiritually dead and alienated from God. Why does blood have to be shed? Because we have sin. Every one of us has a sin problem. And sin brings death. It brings with it death. And the remedy is the shedding of the blood of a substitute, which leads us to the second part. Blood reveals the cost of sin. Blood reveals the cost of sin. If we look at verses 18 through 22, we kind of see this. How many times is the word blood mentioned? Well, the word is in every verse. Twice in verse 22. Six times we see the word blood. Also in verses 15 through 17, we have the word death in each verse. Death and blood. Death and blood. Death and blood. In the Holy of Holies, everything was sprinkled with blood. The priest slaughters all these animals at the altar, and they would take bowls of blood and sprinkle it on the altar in the carcass of an animal would be burned on the altar and and I just want you to stop and think about that for a minute all of this blood all of the smells of burnt carcasses it had to be overwhelming most of us when we buy our meat we don't go out and pick out a cow or a pig or a lamb or whatever and then bring it home and say well I want that one then we bring it home and slaughter it cut it up and, and make our own steaks and stuff out of it. That's not what we do, right? You walk into the grocery store and you say, hey, those T-bone steaks look pretty good. You buy those. You don't have to go slaughter the whole, the whole cow. I'm a hunter. I grew up hunting and fishing. I wish I had a place to hunt here, but I don't. 
I bow hunt, I hunt with a gun, and and when I shot my animal, I would dress that animal. I don't mean put it in a dress. I meant, you know, I would clean that animal. And I've even butchered my own deer. I know what deer season looks like in Missouri. When you walk into the locker and there's all these deer just everywhere being butchered. And they're being prepared. And it's, it's really not, I mean, if you're squeamish, it's not a pretty sight. Now take that and times it by whatever. And you will get the picture of the, of the blood of the Old Testament. The gallons upon gallons upon gallons of blood that flowed from the slaughter of animals. The blood revealed that sin had a cost. I can remember raising these pigs as a kid. And they were like our little pets. And we'd pet them. And, and, uh, but we, we raised them up and time came to butcher them. And it's not fun when you're a kid and you kind of raise these pigs and now you're going to butcher them. It's, it's not a fun time. But I did enjoy the bacon. Just saying. I mean, it tasted good, but it wasn't fun to butcher the pig. Sin has a cost. Something had to die for there to be blood. Blood reveals the cost of sin. Which leads to the third part. Bloodshed revealed that death was a penalty for sin. Bloodshed revealed that death was a penalty for sin. Look at verse 19. The author gives some detail of the old covenant sacrificial system. Most likely he is collectively speaking about all of the rituals under the Old Covenant and dealing with them as one subject, focusing in on the cleansing power of the blood. The main focus of what he's saying is seen in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And then he makes this statement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Penalty for sin is death. And bloodshed revealed that. If I've sinned, then I must offer a sacrifice. That animal must be slaughtered for my sin. Therefore, my sin brings death. And so every person needs forgiveness of sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Which leads to the final point this morning. Jesus initiates the new covenant by his death and with his blood. Jesus initiates the new covenant by his death and with his blood. Forgiveness requires a shedding of blood and in this case a substitute. If it's not our blood, then whose blood's going to be shed? The answer is Jesus. Not only was his blood shed, but he went to the cross and died a cruel death. Jesus, through his death and with his blood, initiates the new covenant. Even though Jesus suffered greatly physically, it is what he accomplished spiritually that brought us redemption from the curse of the law. Paul said that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Though Christ suffered horrendous physical pain, 
He suffered his worst pain when he was separated from the Father. And the Father's wrath was poured out on the Son for us. I'm going to go back to verses 16 and 17 because it is in these verses that we see the author giving the analogy of that last will and testament. And by doing this, it reveals to us that we receive forgiveness as heirs of Christ and through His blood. So first, let's see that we receive forgiveness as heirs of Christ. Verses 16 and 17, we have this analogy of a last will and testament. Let me ask you this morning, what has to happen to receive your inheritance? Well, first, you have to be included in the will, right? And second... The person that included you in the will must die. So if you're not included in the will, then you don't receive the inheritance. And if the person is not dead, you don't receive the inheritance. Look back at verse 15. Because it explains to us who are the heirs of forgiveness. Who are the ones that receive the inheritance? It says this, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Notice it does not say that those who call on God receive promised eternal inheritance. It says those who are called. The focus is on God calling people. It's not the other way around. Why? Why is the focus on God calling the people? Whose estate is it? God's. Whose will is it? God's. Who chooses the heirs of His will? God. We've touched on this before, but we don't get to decide who we are heirs of. We don't get to say, oh, I want to be heir of this person. God makes the decision when it's His will and He's appointing heirs. If we are, He makes the decision if we are heirs or not. God does not have a sign-up sheet. You know, in in church we like to have sign-up sheets. God doesn't have a sign-up sheet. We don't get to get in line and sign up to be His heir. But He has a list that He's already made out before the foundations of the world. His will is drawn up. The testator must die before it can be put into effect. Let's say that you stand to inherit a million dollars from your rich uncle. He has to die in order for you to get that money. He has to include you in his will. What value is that to you while your rich uncle is alive? There is no value in it. Because you're not going to receive the funds as a beneficiary until the death of the testator. The testator must die for the beneficiary to receive anything. It is the same for us. We receive forgiveness as the heirs of Christ. So have you received the call from God and responded by placing your faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? He died so that we could receive the benefits of the will as heirs of forgiveness. If you are an heir of Christ, then you have received forgiveness, which was which was. Completed by his death. But we also must know this. Forgiveness comes only through the shed blood of Christ. Forgiveness comes only through the shed 
blood of Christ, I draw your attention to verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If that is true, then the opposite is also true. And that is this, that with the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sin. That's a present reality. The blood has already been shed. And forgiveness has already been obtained. The debt is already paid. The sins are canceled. And forgiveness has been achieved. And you may be here today and you may be lost. Let me tell you that there's forgiveness of sin available. But it comes only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Under the old covenant, the conscience could not be made pure. As we've said in previous sermons, but it pointed forward to the day when there would be a death that would indeed purchase forgiveness once and for all. All those saved under the old covenant were saved by the new covenant. Even though they were living under the old administration, the old covenant, because by faith they trusted in the blood of the sacrifices and that through them they trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you something. When was the last time that you got blood on something and your first thought was, oh, I just cleansed that. You ever do that? You know, get a little blood on your shirt. Oh, the shirt's now been cleansed. Got some blood on it. No one thinks that, right? When we get blood on something, what's our first thought? I ruined this. This is stained. Oh great, that was my favorite shirt. And now I've ruined it. When I was a young boy, I nearly lost my right leg because I slid into an a in-ground sprinkler system in PE class. Our PE teacher put home plate by that. and I thought I was pretty macho and Went slide into home and I hit it with my with my leg and it peeled my skin down to my ankle and went to the bone, broke the bone, and I nearly lost my leg. We grew up dirt poor. And when I say poor, I mean dirt poor. We'd go into the dump and we'd rummage around the dump and find stuff and take it home. And my mother worked three jobs to support us. We were poor. And I had this, when I did this, I had this pair of corduroy pants. And they were hand-me-downs. We didn't buy them new. But I liked those pants. And I slid in that sprinkler and those pants were covered in blood. And they were ruined. And I remember they cut my corduroy pants off me at the leg. I remember crying, not because it hurt, but because I couldn't believe they were trashing my pants. <laughs> we just don't think that blood cleanses anything. We say, well, it stains. Yet they would take that blood in the tabernacle and they'd sprinkle it on everything. The book, the people, the tabernacle, every sacred vessel. And we would think, well, that would only stain those items. But did you know that within our own body, blood does cleanse? 
Did you know that's the way our body is designed? That our cells are gathered around blood capillaries to keep us from getting too many poisonous byproducts into our system. That through a process known as gas diffusion and transfer, that our individual red blood cells travel slowly inside our capillaries and then they release fresh oxygen and absorb the waste products like carbon dioxide, urea, and uric acid. The red blood cells take these waste products to the organs and then our organs help dump them outside of our body. The lungs and the kidneys and the liver and the spleen work together to clean the blood of the poisons to keep our body cleansed and healthy. Every single red blood cell can sustain the sequence of loading and unloading these chemicals for about a quarter million circuits. And at that point, they are broken down and recycled by the liver and the bone marrow, then erases new red cells to continue on the process at about 4 million cells per second. That's the design of God. Blood cleanses our bodies from poisons. And the blood of Jesus Christ that gets applied to our hearts by faith cleanses us from the poison of sin. And as the hymn goes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This is the truth of God's word that the blood of Christ was shed to cleanse from sin to reveal that forgiveness comes only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Have you applied it to your soul today? It is the only way for forgiveness to come. Only through His blood. I want to close this message this morning by asking you, are you an heir? This passage of Scripture has made some things very clear. That salvation is the gift of God. We don't earn our salvation. But salvation is a gift from God as an inheritance that is freely given to us. We don't earn an inheritance. It's a gift. It's a gift from the benefactor. And this is a picture of saving faith that we receive God's gift in Christ. We, we receive salvation only as an heir. That He appoints us as heirs. And so I ask you this morning, are you an heir? Secondly, as heirs of Christ, we received all that He received from the Father. The greatest of these gifts is the Father Himself. We have fellowship with God as heirs in Christ. God is not too busy for us. God is not tied up with other things. God the Father shares Himself as we have already read, I will be your God and you will be my people. If we trust in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We escape the penalty of our sins against the law and we enter into heaven. And as great as that is, as great as it is to enter into heaven, and we have all kinds of songs that talk about heaven and we talk about longing for heaven, and as great as 
heaven is. Whom have we in heaven? But God. That's what the psalmist says. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? The glory of heaven is not heaven. It's God. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The greatest thing about heaven is that God is there. He is our desire. He is our strength. And He is our portion forever. But we don't have to wait until heaven to gain God. Today we have fellowship with the infinite, holy, transcendent God of the universe. And He gives us passion and purpose and meaning and joy and peace in our lives. Finally, our reaction to such a gift, to such a gift as to be an heir of God, our reaction should be one of overwhelming gratitude. Our inheritance was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, who freely offered Himself. God's only Son, who is the spotless Lamb of God, was slaughtered on the cross of Calvary for our sin to win our inheritance. That should cause you and I to cry out with voices and utter praise to God. Thank you that I can be your heir. So I ask you, are you an heir? Are you listed in God's last will and testament? Do you have an eternal inheritance of God Himself? It's not left to chance. God wrote His will. He then put His Son to death to enforce it. Then He raised His Son to be the executor of the will. His inheritance reaches back in time to the Old Testament saints and reaches to today. They're called men and women, boys and girls, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation out of darkness and into the light. From unbelief to belief, to be fellow heirs with His Son. Hear His call today. Open your ears to hear His voice and open your eyes to see His glory and believe. You say, well, Pastor, I, I already, I've already inherited eternal life. I know I'm an heir. Well, I would say this. Your inheritance comes from Jesus who is the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords. And we should be acting like princes and princesses. We should be acting like royal children of God. Our lives should be a reflection of who we are. And we should worship Him with our secured inheritance. With all we have, we should be worshiping Him and saying, My life is yours, Lord. Just like that great hymn by Isaac Watts when I survey the wondrous cross. Love so amazing. 
so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. So if you would say this morning, yes, I'm an heir. It demands your soul, your life, your all. Is it evident that you are his heir? And are you an heir this morning? Are you an heir? Do you know him? And are you living like it? Maybe this morning you feel like you need to respond to this message. Maybe you would examine your heart and your life and you'd say, I I don't know Jesus. I've never trusted in him to be my savior. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to talk with you this morning. Or maybe you'd say this morning, I'm an heir, but I'm not living like it. I'd love to talk to you again. I'd love to pray with you. You pray in your pew. You can pray at the altar if that's what you want to do. I want to give you the chance to respond to this message this morning. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song, and we'll give you the chance to respond. Let's close in prayer.